0: I want to turn in our Bibles as we attend to the preaching to Matthew 19, but also I would read, as is my custom, the parallel passages, some of which make some slight um, observations that Matthew doesn't, though all is the inspired Word of God and never contradicting itself, yet there are these differences as Matthew, Mark, and Luke have recorded them going to read from Mark 10 and then Luke 18, uh, this parable or this uh, uh, teaching of Jesus about following him and the cost of discipleship and the rewards. So Mark 10, first of all, Jesus uh, is answering Peter, who in verse 28 uh, began to say to Jesus, Jesus, uh, uh, he says, see, we've left all or forsaken all and followed you. That's Peter's remark after, remember, the rich young ruler turns away from Jesus and doesn't follow him, at least at this point. Doesn't obey Jesus, who said to him, Now you're to sell all, that you have all your riches, and come, give that to the poor, and come follow me. So Peter is a, a bit perplexed, to say the least, and he began to say to Jesus, See, we've left all and followed you. And so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are last, or excuse me, many who are first will be last And the last first. Now you go over to Luke 18, and Peter again reacting to Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler going away. He said, See, we've left all and followed you. So he, Jesus, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. Now we want to read Matthew 19. In Matthew 19 and verses 27 through 30, this will be our text. We'll refer to the other parallel passages as it pertains. And Peter answered and said to him, See, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging and the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life that many who are first will be last, and the last first. Thus far we read the word of God. May God bless us. We've read his word. It's intelligible. It's the clear revelation of God about many things, all of them dear to our hearts, the things of the gospel. I want to review for you as we have this last sermon on Matthew 19, that Jesus From the beginning of this chapter, it's recorded he's been on the other side of Jordan, and this would be in the land of Perea. And it would not be many months before, uh, after this ministry there, before Jesus would be crucified. So there's maybe three months until Jesus goes to the cross. He's teaching things that we need to hear, very important, and they're about... Discipleship. There are three important lessons in Matthew 19 about this discipleship, about what it means, what it costs, and the reward of it. We have seen his lessons on divorce and remarriage. We've seen his giving an important lesson on the place of children in the covenant, and we have seen and are seeing tonight what he would teach the disciples about material possessions, in relation to following him. At every point, the disciples who are being taught of Jesus show their need of discipling. The Lord is not finished with them yet, and he won't be finished until the Holy Spirit is poured out, until they've ended their days on the earth. But this is his way now. He's discipling the disciples, and he's shoring them up for the times to come and that they might be examples of what any disciple ought to be. In this narrative, in fact, with regard to those three lessons that Jesus has been teaching, the disciples show their need for discipling. When Jesus teaches of divorce and remarriage and of the permanency of marriage, they respond, well then, if that's the case, and there have to be some who are made eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake... Who should marry? They have a question they need to understand this. And when the children are brought, children of the covenant seed in, of the believers in, in Jewry, the disciples are there rebuking the parents for bringing the children to them, but Jesus has to rebuke them, implied, and to say that of such is the kingdom of heaven. With regard to the rich young ruler, and uh, Jesus uh, sharp lesson on his, the cost of his discipleship, that he has to sell everything he has and give to the poor and come follow him. The disciples say, now this is impossible. How can this be? So Jesus gives the answer, of course, that with God all things are possible. And so who then can be saved? And this is also the question they have about these things. And, and they're all in a dither. And it hardly seems to be the result of education that educators would want to have in their classroom. Imagine that, you're you're teaching on three things or 20 in your class in catechism, and all that your disciples seem to be reacting, uh, the way that they're reacting shows that they're not only not getting it, but they are upset by it, and they are alarmed by it, and, and they ask this question that Peter's going to ask. Uh, about their own standing with him. So Peter, at this point, and this is the whole context, he he responds to Jesus' instruction, especially with regard to that rich young ruler. And he says, See, we've left all and followed you, and therefore what shall we have? Uh, That at first seems to be a very carnal thing, as if Peter is simply saying, Now, what is in it for us? But I think that Peter seems to be standing for the 12 who are concerned simply about the authenticity of their discipleship. Jesus has been casting doubt upon all of those who trust in themselves and who have a lot and whose cost of discipleship is great, and you can imagine what they're feeling like here, and it's not just maybe carnality that Peter has, what's in it for me, but this doubt and this wonder and this a complex psychological and spiritual reaction to what Jesus is teaching here, the wisdom of God, the Word of God. You'll notice, and we can't try to sort out all that's involved in Peter's statement and then in his question, but you'll notice this, the Savior has no rebuke for Peter, no rebuke whatsoever, but he teaches these lowly disciples The great things are the reward of following him. That's what he does. What a teacher. What a savior. What a shepherd. He would encourage the disciples, no matter what their motives are in wondering about their discipleship, in speaking to them of the reward of following Jesus. No matter what the cost, the reward is incommensurate It's incomparable to the cost, to the lives we live and sacrifice, and even to the death we must suffer if that's necessary for his sake. Now, the disciples are needing discipleship, and I want to commend to your attention that so do you. You need discipleship, and so do I. Hence, we're here at this point in the ministry of Jesus in our midst, hearing what he has to say about a disciple's incomparable or incommensurate reward. And so to all of us who are struggling, all of us who are sensitive to the cost of discipleship and wondering if we can pay that cost, all of us who are wondering what's the reward of being a Christian and being a Christian church, a true Christian, a true Christian church, Jesus has this word for you about these wonderful rewards. And so we want to consider the cost of true, true discipleship. We want to consider then the generosity of heaven. And finally, the surprise that Jesus gives. For at the end, he has this twist on things as he has before. He, has, he, he gives this aphorism, this wisdom st- saying of God, but many who are first will be last, and the last First, And I call this surprise, surprise, indeed. So there's the cost of discipleship. Jesus doesn't deny it. He said already to the rich young ruler, the cost is everything he has. The rich young ruler had a great problem. He was making an idol out of his riches. He needed to give it all up because the idol was getting in the way of his following If he ever would follow, and I believe he finally did, Jesus. He had to give to the poor and he had to prove that love of God was truly in him, love to him and then love for God and love for the neighbor as he was boasting. He already had. And he also had to prove that the center of his life would now be the Savior and that he was not going to be hindered by anything, except uh, he, he was not going to be hindered by anything, but he was going to follow the Lord Jesus. Well, what Jesus certainly is saying here is that there is a cost to discipleship. There was a fellow, Dietrich Bonhoeff, who wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship and in it he coined the phrase cheap grace. As if we believe in grace and it comes at no cost to us. We know it comes at a cost of the Savior's blood, but some of us live, and many of us maybe, much of the time as if discipleship doesn't cost us anything. But Jesus is here to disabuse us of that notion. There is no such thing as cheap grace, it comes at the price of His blood. And we ourselves have to give up, not just for Lent, but for Jesus, in fact, everything. What Peter said is not denied by the Savior. When Peter says, we've left all and followed you. In distinction from the rich young ruler who hadn't left all and followed Jesus, it was true of the disciples. They had left all or forsaken all, could be translated. They'd forsaken all and followed Jesus. They'd forsaken their place in the tax collector's booth, Matthew And many of them had left their fishing nets and their occupations. They left those, and we don't know how entirely they left them, but they were primarily now in a new occupation, following Jesus, learning of Jesus, spreading the gospel for his sake. They had left father and mother and lands and so on, and wives, not that they'd abandoned them, But now their principal devotion was to the Savior, and nothing would interfere with that. Jesus does not say that Peter's wrong. Even Judas, outwardly, had left all and followed Jesus outwardly. So Jesus, first of all, has a message to the disciples, but in this point of my sermon, I'm just going to speak to the message that's given here about the sacrifice that Christians must make. Now, we've met with that, Earlier in Matthew, Matthew 10, for example, the calling of the disciples, there's different things that are listed that they must do in order to follow him. Jesus will not have any competitors. There will be no other teachers that they must follow. There will be no other allegiances that uh, that they show themselves devoted to. Jesus must be everything to them. So they sacrifice. They forsake all. And the idea is that they forsake all in the heart, not simply that they leave life and leave things, though this is emphasized here. And Jesus speaks of the concrete reality of discipleship. Everyone who's left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold. But the first thing we have to realize is that Disciples, if they are true, leave everything, and before they leave everything, they leave themselves, if I could say it that way. That's what Jesus means when he says, Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Remember, once a professor of mine said, Well, it's easy to give away a car to somebody, it's easy to give away your money to somebody, it's not easy. To deny yourself. In fact, this is the impossible thing of discipleship. And this is why, just above, Jesus has said, With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. How can one deny himself, after all, and especially when it's not even moral to deny yourself and hate yourself, you're to love your neighbor as yourself, after all, but how can you do this thing called deny yourself? And Jesus will even explain that to mean, Losing your life for my sake. Not gaining your life, but losing your life. Well, the meaning of the Scripture at this point, when it speaks of the essential cost of discipleship, is simply that in Jesus we must find our all and our life and our new identity, we haven't found him. In Jesus, we must have our all and find our all and our life or we haven't found him and he hasn't found us. Now, beloved, is this piercing into your heart and into your understanding. Discipleship is first not about leaving things and giving some money in the collection plate and sacrificing here and there and, and making sure you're eating or drinking right and you're not going to certain places. That's involved and it has to be involved because life is not just spirit without flesh. But Jesus addresses here when he's speaking also of the rewards like eternal life, things that are spiritual, things that get to the heart of a person, things that are more than of this world but they're of God and they're of the nature of the spiritual kingdom. A man must follow Jesus who's no longer following the world because his ego is, is obliterated, as it were. Not his person, not his sense of, of well-being, and he knows he's this person who's a real person, but his pride the renunciation of the great citadel of our self-made trinities, me, myself, and I, is involved here. Jesus would have you, not just a part of you. He would have you, and not just your money. He would have you, and not just some of your time. Because he's God. And you shall have no other gods besides him. He's your savior. You shall have no other life besides the one that he gives. You shall have Jesus. You shall follow Jesus, be devoted to Jesus, worship God in him. Or you're a fake and a hypocrite and you're just hedging your bets. A lot of people do that. Jesus is speaking here of the cost of true discipleship, not of getting on the bandwagon of Christianity discipleship or coming in on the coattails of mom and dad because you've been baptized and because that's what they do discipleship. He's talking about reality of heaven come down in heaven coming down to you and to me and making you something that you weren't by birth. We heard this morning a spiritual dead man, a woman. Discipleship is fruit of the fact that you live. It's simply now what you are and what happens to you. You learn. You are groomed for the kingdom of heaven. You are in the kingdom of heaven Your desires are no longer yours, all of them. Your inclinations are now towards what he is inclined to. Your loves are his, your hates are his, and his loves are yours and his hates are yours because you're aligned. And you come now to church and you go to work and you go to play and you kick up your feet or you run miles and whatever you're doing, because he's yours and you're locked in to this freedom of the new man is that you that's the cost and the cost is is everything because it's you before it's everything it's basically true worship of God, to which he's calling us and which he's outlining here and assuming before he gets to the rewards. With regard to the three three things of discipleship, what shall it be? He's saying here, I've just taught you, have you learned your lessons? Where shall you stand on marriage? What shall be your position on children? What is it that you shall decide this morning or Monday morning or after this lesson about material possessions? And how will this show that you yourself are a Christian no matter what the cost of discipleship? Because Jesus is everything to you. And that's what he brings out in verse 29. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold. For my sake. <laughs> it's not what's in it for me. And if there was some bad motive of Peter, you know, what shall we have? Be, Jesus is now rebuking him and saying, for my sake. For my sake, for my sake. As if Peter would lay awake that night and hear Jesus' words, for my sake, for my sake, for my sake. As he lay upon his bed and tried to put to sleep his restless head. For my sake, for my sake, for my sake. For my sake, that's why we're Jesus' disciples, for Jesus' sake. Not to get anything in the world, but to give glory to God. For my sake, for my sake, for my sake. For my sake, they don't know the half of who Jesus is really at this point. Son of man, Son of God, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. These confessions have been made. But are they getting it? How can they possibly understand the sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross for their sins? How could they really understand the grace of redemption, the freeness of it all? They're still thinking in terms of what's in it for us. How can they understand the great substitute, Messiah for sinners, God with us? Because God was forsaken of God on Calvary. How can they get that? How can we? Rewards. Rewards then. They understand that. This is my second point. And this is what Jesus emphasizes here. And he says, Assuredly. You wonder why Jesus needed ever to say, Assuredly. It's like us saying, Honestly. Really? And if you don't say that, I shouldn't trust you? Don't say honestly. I've been tempted to rebuke many ministers. Maybe it's just being me being an imp. Honestly? But now, I'm, of course, with all reverence, knowing that Jesus says assuredly, for a good reason, but in a way... You'd say he doesn't need to because it simply means verily, verily, amen, I say to you, it is so. And when he says simply, it is so, I'm saying to you, we ought to listen, but it's for our sakes that he says it. That's why Jesus says it. Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory and so on, and then he promises to everyone who's left houses and brothers and so on, reward. But now, I do want to make a distinction here. Jesus is in the first hand, on the first hand here, speaking of a reward that is to be to the disciples, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. There's a lot of discussion that is brought out at this point and difference of opinion among the commentators, excuse me, and the... the, the ministers. Uh, I'm going to emphasize the latter reward for everyone, everyone who's left houses or brothers, verse 29, but we need to take a little bit of time here for this reward that's promised in the regeneration to the 12 apostles. And as you noted, I'm sure you're remembering what we read in Mark and Luke, parallel passages, this Phrase and this reward that's mentioned here is not mentioned there. It's only mentioned in Matthew and verse uh, chapter 19. First of all, uh, Jesus is speaking here of the twelve disciples, but not inclusive of every one of them, because Judas is there, and he will not certainly not be judging the twelve tribes of Israel in heaven. In fact, it would only be Matthias or Paul that the reference could be to, or both of them, and the number 12 being a round number, denoting fullness, to which Jesus is referring it is not Judas here mentioned. These are the true disciples of Jesus to whom he's promising this reward. He promises this reward in the regeneration. You know that? Assuredly, I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones, referring to twelve disciples, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 28. Well, there are at least three different views of the regeneration. Let me run them by you a little bit, not to be distracted, but to tell you something of the complexity of trying to understand this this reward here that Jesus would give to his disciples. In the regeneration can, first of all, refer to what regeneration means in the Bible and in the only other place in Titus where this word regeneration is used, to the new birth. could be referring to the fact that the 12 disciples will be, be rewarded Some people say, uh, in their being regenerated and living out their regeneration so that they have a reward of those who are sanctified, who build upon the regeneration, the first work of life that God does, and they show themselves worthy of reward in some way or another. That I do not think is possible, even though the word regeneration refers literally to being born again. I don't think here it refers to being born again. The second thing it could be referred to is the whole dispensation, the times of this newness when Jesus has appeared until he comes again as a transition state. Verily I say to you, in these times of this newness, and in fact it would be before the Spirit is poured out, in this time, these years of my appearing, there's a time of newness in which the church is being formulated but only in an embryonic or baby uh, sort of stage. And you, who are leading the way, you will be given the reward because in this time of regeneration and newness, um, you have been faithful to me. Well, I think that's a stretch as well to refer to because it seems that the regeneration here is referring to when Jesus ascends and when there's this thing that happens because he's ascended to glory and that is the new heavens and the new earth. Most commentators are thinking that this is what this referred to. I'm going to go with this. Assuredly, so here we can interpret. I say to you, in the regeneration, in the renewal of all things, Revelation 21 1 Peter 3, the new heavens and new earth. When the Son of Man sits on his glory, you who follow me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the point seems to be that these disciples will have a special reward when Jesus comes again, special place in heaven even, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, exactly because they were fundamental in the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2 verse 20, after all speaks of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone and with him also are the, or he's the chief cornerstone and with him also are the 12 apostles and the prophets. They have a fundamental building place in the building of the church of Jesus Christ. Them is given this honor, this position of judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I think, beloved, that... We need to understand here, Israel, not in the Jewish sense of the word. Some believe that they will be judging and be ruling over and in an honor position even more than the 12 tribes of Israel, the the Jews themselves. But I believe that Jesus is referring to what will be articulated later in the New Testament to Israel as the Israel of God of all believers. Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there's neither Jew nor Greek. All who believe are sons of Abraham. Galatians 6, 16, you are the Israel of God who are consecrated to God in true discipleship. What Jesus is saying here, in other words, is something that's beyond Jewry, beyond Jewish, Jewishness. He's speaking of an honor that the disciples will have At the right and left hands of Jesus, his, after all, is the throne in the center, but they will have it around him, as it were, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, the church of Christ, in this honored position as a reward for their costly discipleship. Now, I say this, beloved, because it's a great thing. It's a great thing that the disciples should be held out this reward because surely their apostleship was, was limited and, and faulty. But every one of them, except for maybe one, is said to have died and been a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. And though every one of them or, or every one of us is given, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, the position of judging all things. Nevertheless, these have the honored position as the chosen ones who would be the foundation of the church, him being the chief cornerstone. This is what he holds out to them. What an encouragement. What an encouragement. You see, they're called, and everyone is called except for Judas, of course, and Paul out of due time and Matthias by a vote of the disciples. They're they're called to be right with Jesus, right with Jesus, and though they would forsake him at the cross, and later on they would die for him, and they'd be writers of the New Testament. They're there with him to lead the way in what it is to be a disciple who will give everything for the Savior and to suffer with him and, if necessary, to die for him. Then he goes on to speak of everyone else's reward. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or child, children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Well, beloved, I don't know how I can preach this because the Bible itself says that I have not seen, neither ear heard, the things that God has prepared for them who love him. Hasn't even entered into the heart of man, the things of heaven. But of this Jesus is speaking here. He's saying... There's houses you leave, there's brothers, there's sisters, there's father, there's mother, there's wife, there's children, there's lands for my sake. But that's nothing! And that's the idea of his saying, in its place you'll receive a hundredfold. One of the other Gospels says, many times over. It's nothing. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. I'll read that for you. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. They're not worthy to be compared. Or as he says in, Roman, in 1 Corinthians 4, as we often We often cite this at funerals, or 2 Corinthians 4. The afflictions of this time are light compared to the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Here's your afflictions, beloved. Here they are. Compared to the eternal weight of glory. Here's your afflictions. Watch this. Up they go. And there is nothing when you put glory on the other side of the scale. What are they? And even now, Jesus is speaking of now, you shall receive these things. Even now, what you have now is far greater in worth than what you leave. So you leave what's most dear to you, your wife, your husband, your family, for the cause of the kingdom of heaven. In marrying. In knowing that here's a place where you can serve the Lord on the mission field. Whatever. In being here or being there, wherever God calls you, though you're more comfortable being there rather than here. Do you know there's some people who've left their religion, the religion of their home. And it's been said of them that when they left, their family was so incensed at their new religion called Christianity that they performed a funeral for that person. They considered her dead. And I think there's some of us here whose family is like that in their antagonism. To true religion and to anyone who would be holy. And it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. Times will come, Jesus says, when your father, or your mother, they'll forsake you, they'll whisper about you to the authorities, and your, your children would turn you in. There's going to be this conflict of the ages and the devil coming into households, even covenantal generations of household, and trying to break you up and trying to break a church up. In the name of what? I don't know. But certainly not for Jesus' sake. So your reward then compared even to that. Who can know it? Who can know it? Because the suffering seems so great, doesn't it? The littleness that we have, and the much that seems to be taken away, it hurts. But Jesus is saying and speaking now spiritually, we do in the light of the rest of the Bible, what is all of leaving this for Or if you don't have peace with God. Or put it another way, if you leave all of this and you have left all of this and you're naked and you're shivering on the side street and you have to beg and so on. If you have the peace of God and you have all of that other stuff taken away from you, don't you have enough? That's what Jesus is saying. If you know the forgiveness of sins, what is it that people call you a liar and a cheat and a hot-under-the-collar Christian? As long as you know the Father's estimate of you is that you're a faithful child, faithful son, faithful minister, faithful father, faithful employee of God. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is how Peter begins his doxology in 1 Peter. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. Cost of discipleship, what is it? Compared to the things of eternal life, which is real and to us, and which is to come. We receive a hundredfold, Mark and Luke say, even now, eternal life, the continuation of it, the glorification of it in the life to come. I want to point out to you, and this will bear upon our final points. What Jesus is pointing out here is spiritual blessedness. There are many nowadays who might interpret this to mean, you know, to be something that you could measure. But Jesus is not some, speaking of something you can measure. Because it could be that all of the subtractions you can measure, you've left this, you've left that, they've taken your money, your church goes down inside, whatever it is will be a way that There's subtraction. And you'll never really be able to measure the positive. The things of eternal life, the things of knowledge of God and growing in grace and patience and kindness and servanthood. You'll never be able to measure it. But this is exactly what he's speaking of when he speaks also in Mark of the fact that as you're being this disciple and as you're being promised rewards, you will receive them with persecution. That's the bad thing he throws in there, as if, as if that were part of the rewards here. You're going to get this and this and gold and rubies and, and green stones and everything else that we count valuable. And also, in the same bag, persecutions. Now, why is Jesus saying that? You wouldn't want to put that in the bag of treasures, would you? But he's saying it's a treasure. Do you know why? And I found this in my 60-plus years of living. The greatest thing is to be hard by the cross of Calvary and to know something of participation in the sufferings of Jesus Christ for God's sake. That's the greatest thing in the world. It's when you say, and when God has said, I'm going to take this person, and I'm going to take him away from the whole world because I want him to have my word, my son. And that's all I want him to have, or I, at least I want him to have this first of all. When we understand that part and parcel with discipleship is suffering for Jesus' sake, then we're getting it then we're getting closer, then we're understanding. It's not about the things you see. And so away with the blasted view that progress in Christianity is measurable, that we should think in terms of more and more people being added to some church and some visible form of Christianity so that gradually the majority of people will be saved on this planet even and there will be a kind of christianization of society and it'll be god glorified in that well beloved god is glorified in blood in the blood of the cross and where the theology of the blood is preached and not the glory of man their disciples are made and discipled further and the things that make for the glory of God and the reproach of Christ. You can't skip the cross to get to glory. You can't preach a crossless sermon and make disciples. So this has to do also with The blasting away, though we do this because we're in this age of any form of millennialism, like premillennialism. That is, the belief that there's going to be a thousand year reign of Jesus on this earth in Jerusalem and the sacrifices repeated, a glory as of the old days. Of Jewry. Look what Jesus is saying here. Everyone leaves this and that and the other thing, and people who are dear to your life, you receive lands, not the land of Israel, not the land. The only holy land on this earth is where God plants his flag in the kingdom of heaven. It's the church of Christ. That's the holy place. You are the holy nation, Peter says, of believers. You are the kingdom of heaven. You are where God is making disciples, and you are going, and from you is going out, the true church of Christ to make true disciples of the Lord who will follow in his footsteps no matter what the cost and a pretty penny will be paid. Surprise, surprise, Jesus says. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's kind of like with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Lose your life and you'll gain it. Gain your life, you'll lose it. Deny yourself and I'll reward you. Many are first, will be last, and last first. What's Jesus doing? Beloved, I believe he's simply reminding us that this is something to confound those who think they're wise in their own eyes. And Paul, or God say to Samuel, I don't look as men look when he was choosing David, the least of the sons of Jesse, to be the next king. And I think this is the idea here. Many who are considered to be first now, the preeminent ones, even in the kingdom, will be last. Many who are last will be first. It will be a, a reversal of what you'd expect. The last will have the greatest reward, the first, the least reward. Reward. And not to say, not to try to understand if Jesus is speaking of the fact that the first might actually be lost, Uh, we're just going to be focusing here on what Jesus is bringing out here, the way of God that's not our way. We count things this way and God counts things another way. His ways are not our ways, they're higher. It's not many mighty that are called, not many wise, but God calls the foolish things of the world. This is the idea here, to confound the wisdom of men that all should give glory to God and not to the man and his pedigree or his natural talent or whatever else he's boasting in. Jesus is speaking here of the way of the kingdom. Now, some people have said that, Perhaps Jesus is referring to those who are first like the Jews, who were first in the order of, in which God was saving people. Many of those who are Jews will be last, they say Jesus is saying, and the last, the Gentiles, are now the first. And they even cite the next chapter. If you look at that, in verse 16, there is the parable of the kingdom of heaven who gave rewards to certain laborers and those who labored in the field all day and those who labored only for a little while received the same reward. The conclusion that Jesus gives there in verse 16 is that the last will be first and the first last for many are called but few are chosen. Same idea. Speaking of a temporal order here but I think beloved what Jesus is mentioning here is this Position of first and position of last. He'll speak of the order of Jews and Gentiles later, but he's really speaking of the worth of grace, as we'll speak of in another sermon. But this position. People are thinking, well, this person, what a mighty preacher. He's a Spurgeon. He's the Spurgeon of Africa, the Spurgeon of North America. Here's the one, must have the spirit. Why? Because look at all the converts And maybe it's like that, that that person will have a great place in the kingdom of heaven. But many who are like that, Jesus says, will be last. And again, not to say that they'll be out of the kingdom, but their reward will be relatively less compared to the one who was last. Maybe like the guy, the old man of whom it was said, was constantly praying unnoticed for that preacher or the woman in the congregation that was constantly praying for the success of the labors of the preacher. Maybe that one will be the first. Maybe those prayers that were unrecognized here but heard in heaven all the time will be why that person is rewarded, just like the woman with the two mites, threw in of her all and gave to the cause of the kingdom. This was great in the kingdom of heaven. Or Mary, who anointed Jesus' body for for his burial and so on, and with this costly ointment, and Judas didn't like that, and the other disciples were a little bit ticked off at that because it was worth so much, but she knew that Jesus was worth far more. And the things that God sees are what are important. Well, beloved, this is the constant lesson in ministry and discipleship and being church people, isn't it? Following Jesus wherever he goes. Following Jesus. Following him personally. And this is a call today. Follow Jesus. You, you, me. This is a calling today to families. Follow Jesus. Be consistent, moms and dads. Be good examples. Follow Jesus, young people of the covenant. Find your mates in the Lord. Marry in the Lord. Be faithful to your vows. This is your calling, Church of Jesus Christ at Sovereign Grace. Follow the Lord. Follow the Lord, whatever it costs. Wherever he leads, as you hear the word of God, preach the word of God, pray for the word of God, and fellowship around it. Follow the Lord, and he will bless you. And the half of your blessing now and forever, has not been told. Press on. Amen. We pray, Father, your blessing upon preaching and hearing. Help us to go wherever you lead, knowing that you lead in green pastures, you lead to heaven. You lead in the good way, you lead we might be kept from the evil way and the evil one. Your leading is good. Your blessings are great. And Lord, it's not something you can deposit us in a bank. And Lord, help us to lay up treasures that are in heaven. Invest our all to find the great return on our investment of grace, the reward of grace. At the end of the day, not only but every day. And even, Lord, if it's only that we know your smile in the darkness, that will satisfy us the smile of our Father. Bless us and our children with that perspective the view from above of sins and miseries and death, but of life eternal, the view that is hope, the view that is joy. Joy in the Holy Ghost now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.